electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome, everybody. Stocks are sliding today across the board. We're down about 2%, 2.2 on the Dow, which is down 577. We're about 100 points off the lows right now. Similar declines for the S&P and for the NASDAQ composite. Concerns about that spike in coronavirus cases across the country are really taking a swing out of things. Cases are rising in more than 30 states. The seven-day average of new cases is at a record high. Texas is rolling back some of the state's reopening, and Florida is closing all of its bars. Let's dig deeper into the stocks being most impacted at this hour. For that, we turn to Bob Bassani. Bob? And uh, stocks are struggling because the pace of the reopening story is faltering. The V-shaped recovery is in question, and that's why we're having a tough time. And when this kind of thing happens, you see the biggest damage in travel and leisure stocks. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. Dow Industrials, by the way, just off the lows for the day. S&P 500 just off the lows as well. But there's your travel and leisure names, your usual suspects, Avis, United, Carnival, which is looking very washed out at this point. It's already had some serious damage. Wind Resorts all down 2 to 4%. Shoe companies all getting hit because of Nike. And I think it's fair to call it a bit of an earnings debacle for them. Look at that. So Foot Locker, Steve Madden, uh, some of the other ones like Wolverine, uh, they make uh, Hush Puppies and Merrill's. I love Merrill's. Uh, they're all down right now. And I, I, it's very important to point out what's happened with Nike because the earnings miss was enormous. And I think we're going to have this problem with a lot of companies. Analysts are clueless. They have no idea what the earnings are going to be. So the loss was 51 cents from Nike, but the analysts were expecting a gain of seven cents. Even the low analyst estimate thought it was going to be 38 cent loss. Well, the bottom line was everyone was wrong. 100% of the analysts were wrong. That's a clue that analysts don't know what they're doing. And when the companies don't give guidance, the analysts can't figure out what's going on. And I think this will be a problem in the third and fourth quarter. Take a look at the banks very quickly here. Wells Fargo and Capital One, they're the ones that were supposed to be likely having dividend cuts, but the market's not distinguishing. You see everything's down three, four, five, six percent. Guys, we're going to have this big Russell rebalancing at the close. We're going to get a lot of volume in addition to all these issues today. Back to you. Yeah, what a day for it, Bob. Thank you very much. That's Bob Bassani. Let's turn to Meg Terrell now, who spoke directly with Dr. Fauci earlier today. This as the White House holds its first public coronavirus task force briefing in almost two months. We'll bring you any headlines from that briefing as they come in. But first, uh, Meg, let, tell us what the, Dr. Fauci had to say and what the latest is on the COVID front. Yeah, Kelly, well, some headlines already to tell you about from the White House Coronavirus Task Force briefing. Vice President Pence speaking right now and striking definitely a more optimistic tone about the progress the country's made than I heard from Dr. Fauci in our interview, which we taped earlier today for the Milken Summer Series conference, which uh, is actually airing right now if folks want to watch that. Uh, now, uh, Pence saying at the beginning that all 50 states and territories in the United States are opening, uh, quote, safely and responsibly right now. Um, he noted that the U.S., after those 45 days to slow the spread, uh, he says that we slowed the spread, flattened the curve, saved lives. 
Nonetheless, he does acknowledge the rising number of cases in states across the South and the West, and he said he spoke with the governors of Florida, Texas, and Arizona in just the last 12 hours, and that he and Dr. Burks are going to visit Texas and Arizona next week, and that he's visiting Florida later next week to kind of get a status check um, on the ground. He says they're going to talk about the efforts they're going to be taking in specifically 16 states in the U.S. where both cases are rising and the percent of positive tests are rising as well, showing there may be community spread in those places. Meanwhile, Kelly, I did tape earlier with Dr. Anthony Fauci, who uh, is very concerned about what he called a serious turnaround in some areas of the country. And, you know, we're always talking about testing, tracing, and isolating cases. I asked him specifically how contact tracing in the U.S. is going. Here's what he said. It's not going well. I have to tell you, it's not going well. Billions of dollars that were given to the CDC to distribute to the states for the purpose, for the purpose of identification, isolation, contact tracing. And that meant do whatever you need to do to get it done. You need to build a hotel to put people in there, do it. Just do what you need to be done. We gotta make sure that happens because I don't really see that happening to a great degree right now. So we better get on it and make it happen. So, Kelly, a pretty frustrated Dr. Foundry you're seeing right there. Meg, what do we know about hospitalization rates and death rates in terms of not just the spread of these cases, but the severity of them? And most importantly, you know, how close we are for the healthcare system in terms of getting overwhelmed? Yeah, it's different in different areas, but you are starting to see the hospitalizations start to rise both nationally and concerningly in areas with this biggest spread. Of course, we've been hearing about Houston reaching its capacity in normal ICUs, now going into surge capacity. Uh, you're seeing uh, hospitalization or hospital capacity going down uh, in these areas. And that's another thing Dr. Fauci and I talked about. It's that even though younger people are making up a bigger bulk of those uh, getting diagnosed, he said, that doesn't mean that, A, they're immune from being hospitalized, or B, that they won't go on to spread this to people at higher risk of hospitalization or death. So we are all in this together, and we all need to be careful. Yeah. Meg, thanks very much. Uh, we appreciate it. Meg Terrell there. And we are tracking the rise of COVID cases across the country. Hospitalizations in Florida have more than doubled since the state reopened on May 4th. Across the Gulf, Texas is dealing with a 79 percent increase in its seven-day average of cases. And that's led Governor Greg Abbott to sign an executive order today reclosing bars in the state except for delivery and takeout. The order also limits restaurant capacity to 50 percent. It closes rafting and tubing businesses and mandates that outdoor gatherings of more than 100 people be approved by local officials. For more on the state of the outbreak in Texas and how hospitals are dealing with the surge in cases, I'm joined by Dr. David Callender. He is president and CEO of Memorial Hermann Health System, one of the biggest in Houston. Dr. Callender, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be with you. So is your ICU capacity, full, uh, regular capacity full right now? And are, have you had to turn to that surge capacity? We're not using surge capacity. We actually still think we have plenty of capacity to meet the demand for COVID as well as non-COVID patients. We're always busy in the summertime and what we're seeing now is a typical summer for us. So while um, hospital capacity is really hard to describe, it's constantly in flux and being managed. Right now we're able to do that very well. I've noticed that the, all the, the heads of the Houston hospitals have been very much trying to calm everybody down and saying we have plenty of capacity. 
you know, we're going to be fine. I mean, why aren't you more concerned? It's a striking difference from what we saw up in, the, in this part of the country. You know, as our case count spread and the number of cases rose, almost every hospital leader was on here trying to tell people, you know, you need to be wearing a mask. You know, we can't deal with this, you know, surge like this. Why do you feel so calm about this? Well, again, we're, we're used to dealing with complex patients and functioning at high demand levels. So this is nothing that's new for us. And we also know that we can adjust as we go forward to meet the need for a greater number of COVID patients. What we prefer is to do exactly what we believe Dr. Fauci was suggesting, which is to focus more broadly on the impact of this disease across the population, certainly on the economy, and try to get the public to behave differently, to wear masks, to wash their hands, to maintain appropriate social distancing. If we do that, we know we can severely limit the spread of this disease. How severe are the COVID patients in your hospital and how successful are your treatments in dealing with them? We've certainly learned a lot since we first encountered this disease back in the middle of March here in Houston. Um, We're seeing a slightly lower rate in terms of the number of typical hospital bed patients who convert to a need for ICU um, hospitalization. We're also using ventilators less frequently. We have more uh, drugs at our disposal that we know help limit the severity and duration of the illness. So overall, I believe that we're faring better than we did just a couple of months ago. Can we go through the numbers? How many of your ICU beds are being used? And when you talk about surge capacity, what is that exactly? Is that on-premises? Is that elsewhere? How many beds is it? How quickly can it be brought up and running? The latter question um, first, you know, just about any bed in our hospitals can serve to deliver intensive care services. This is the idea of what we call acuity adaptable beds. So across our system, we have about 4,000 beds that we can bring into play. Right now, only about 30% are being utilized for COVID care. So we still have plenty of capacity for COVID patients as well as patients who need hospitalization for other illnesses. One of the things we noted previously is that when we devoted most of our beds to COVID care, the entire um, region's health suffered. We do not want that to happen again. Yeah, and it, of course, is a financial problem as well for the whole hospital system, the whole healthcare system in the country when elective surgeries are postponed, and that'll be an issue for another time. Uh, my final question is, what happens if Texas cases and hospitalizations keep surging? You know, we don't know if that will happen or not, but the numbers in Texas and Florida continue to hit records. Um, what, what kind of planning do you have to make sure that if this jump continues to go for another week or two, the hospital system is going to be okay? Yeah, we think we will be. But, you know, we're working closely with our elected officials here around Greater Houston, also at the state level, the governor's office more specifically, to think about what additional resources might we need if truly the condition continues to deteriorate. And so, again, we have um, ongoing efforts to identify additional surge capacity that could extend outside of our hospitals and have great collaboration across our region in case that happens. Interesting. And is there anything you think that the public needs to be doing differently to prevent a continued spike? Or do you feel comfortable with the way the state has handled uh, shutdowns, reopenings and so forth? Well, what we all need to focus on, again, is Dr. Fauci's message. 
We need for people to wear masks. We know they're effective. We've stopped the transmission of COVID-19 in our hospitals by wearing masks, maintaining appropriate social distancing, washing our hands, and keeping sick employees at home. All right. Dr. David Callender from Memorial Hermann Health System in Houston, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Let's turn to the markets now, which are selling off as cases intensify and raising concerns about the broader economic recovery. Dow's down 529 today. Are we headed for another major downturn? Joining me is Craig Callahan, president of Icon Advisors, and Tracy Maitland, chief investment officer at Advent Capital Management. It's good to have you both here. Craig, I mean, it's striking how calm the head of a major Houston hospital sounds about this outbreak in his area. What does that tell you as an investor about how we may proceed this time around with markets and the economy as case numbers rise? At Icon, we're bullish. We find stocks to still be priced below their intrinsic value. We would expect the market to move about 20 percent higher over the next year. And interesting how confident he did sound and stressed how much they've learned about this disease since it first appeared. Do you think we're going to avoid broader shutdowns? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> it, yeah. It's such a fluid situation. But we're, we're basing our bullishness on the expected economic recovery six to nine months out from now. And we think the market's just leading that in its normal fashion. One more, Craig, and I'm not sure if Nike is a stock that you would particularly uh, invest in or, or not. But the earnings missed yesterday. Does it have you reevaluating what your earnings estimates are for the companies that you do own in any kind of measurable way? We do own Nike, and it's been very good for us this year. We, we see this as a one-time dip, and when you look into the forecasted earnings for next year and the year after, you see an expected recovery. So uh, I have not sold it with this event. I'm just riding through it. Interesting. And there's Nike shares down about 6% today. Okay, Tracy, let me turn to you, bring you in. I know you also specialize in a lot of uh, the debt market. So what would you say about the health of corporate America right now? Are these companies that you think are going to be hamstrung for years by the amount of debt they've had to raise to get through this? Or are they going to be able to pay it down, come through this in a couple of years and be fine? Well, thanks for having me, Kelly. Appreciate being on the show. Uh, I would first say that we are focused on companies that we could clearly see a liquidity bridge over COVID. So we want to look at companies that have uh, 12 to 24 months of liquidity. Uh, that's very, very important to us. So, you know, we like to say that the old adage that this is a, a stock, not a stock market, but a market for stocks. So you got to really focus on each individual situation and make a determination based upon that. So really the liquidity bridge is super important understanding that these companies have great franchises. Remember, when you buy stocks, it's a long-term call on cash flows. And so it's a temporary disruption right now, and people need to understand and appreciate that. And what you really need to focus on is who can make it over to the other side uh, of this COVID bridge. Would you, would you give any examples of the companies you think are in better position, Tracy? And even if there are more shutdowns, are you concerned about that? So, of course, we're concerned about the shutdowns. and But I would note that 78% uh, of the of there's 20 states in this country where uh, contributes to 78 percent of the GDP of this country, right? And of those 20 states, only five only five percent of those uh, have five percent positivity rates. So you got to understand that. And then there are five states where the positivity rates are above five percent. So you have to put this in perspective. Of course, that can change. 
change, but we're certainly very concerned about that. We're watching it very closely. But understanding the liquidity bridge is, is crystal clear. We look at uh, some of the recovery trades like Royal Caribbean. They have 24 months of liquidity, $6.5 billion in cash uh, on the balance sheet. Or, or, or Booking.com, $13.5 billion in cash, you know, 28 months of liquidity uh, on the balance sheet. So these are the type of things that you need to focus on. And then you might also want to focus on, you know, companies that went in a COVID or non-COVID world. That could be a Splunk or a Cloudflare, right? That continue to work uh, irrespective of what happens uh, with COVID. So I would have a, a balanced portfolio uh, of securities on, on both ends of that spectrum. But you know, Kelly, we focus on convertible securities. So yeah. the idea that you can invest in a convertible security where they mature in three to five years. If the stock goes up, you can enjoy a majority of the upside of stock. And if stock goes down, you know, you're stopped out on a with a seam security that matures in three to five years. So that's really, really important. I would note that the convertible market this year through yesterday is up 6% and growth convertible is up 15%, besting the S&P 500 uh, compared to high yield, uh, which is down about 4%, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and the S&P, which is down about 4%. So to me, if you want to invest in the, in the equity market, convertibles are a great way to go because you can get a lot of the upside and be stopped out on a downside on creditworthy companies. You know, I might also add that the convertible market has grown, uh, the new issue market has grown over 200% this year. So we have a lot of new issues to choose from, a lot of opportunities to choose from. Mm-hmm. So we're very happy to uh, look at that uh, as well. So I think it's important that if you want to be in the equity markets, you want to reduce volatility, convertibles is a very, very interesting way to do it. And it's one of the best performing asset classes uh, this year. All right, Tracy, it's great to have you. And again, eclectic list of ideas and a, a good explainer there. Thank you, Tracy Maitland and Craig Callen. We appreciate it as well, talking through these markets today. And coming up, it's been a wild ride for oil this year, starting at $60 a barrel, dropping to negative 40, now back up at 38. Up next, Harold Hamm, a legend in the oil world, joins us for his take on where we're going from here. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Oil's down about 3% this week as fears linger that a spike in coronavirus cases could stall the demand recovery as some reopenings are being put on hold already. For more on what the future of the energy sector looks like, I'm joined by Harold Hamm, the founder and executive chairman of Continental Resources. Welcome. It's good to have you here, sir. And what is your overall sense of this economy? Are you concerned by the spike in COVID cases? Well, it is concerning for all of us. You know, you have to be careful and we are here in Oklahoma trying to do the best we can with the situation that we have. And everybody's wearing masks and uh, being very careful. Social distancing is really important. And, you know, uh, we're glad to see uh, that uh, the fatality rates are, are still going down here, although the cases seem to be coming up somewhat with uh, all the activity that's going on. 
Sure. Does oil at $40 a barrel, which we briefly hit this week, does that price level make sense to you? Is that too high? It's not too high. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, we're seeing demand come back. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, gasoline uh, uses has been pretty good. A lot of people are driving heck of a lot more since they, they can't fly. But, you know, we're still missing all the jet fuel sales and that 8 million barrels is hard to replace out there. But anyway, it's, uh, uh, I think overall we're, we're pleased that uh, the market has kind of found solid footing and, and uh, the, the pace of uh, demand uh, coming back is, is very steady. Uh, you know, we're not back uh, to where we were, but we're certainly better than we were a few weeks ago when uh, demand was about 80% of what it had been, and we're, we're about 10% up from that now. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely encouraging. You're all speaking of the price of oil. You're here on a very important day in that regard, a historic one, really. You're launching the American Gulf Coast Select. This is going to be a new benchmark for U.S. crude uh, oil prices. Uh, tell me about it. It won't trade for another month or two. It's going to trade not on the CME, which is an interesting uh, point in here as well. Uh, why? What's wrong with WTI? You know, it's... Uh uh, first of all, uh, you know, you mentioned you, and and really, uh, American Gulf Coast Select came about with a task force that's, that's very broad across the entire industry, and we call it uh, in, in, the entire industry community uh, has participated in bringing this about. And, and you know, we, we look at uh, almost always, uh, it, it takes a crisis to bring something like this about, and and, and certainly we had a crisis that occurred with the lack of demand and, and all that and, and, the, and the market failure April 20th, uh, you know, from a landlocked uh, market situation. So, you know, this is probably long overdue. This need to be created a few years back. But, you know, most of the major markets around the world, almost all of them are for waterborne barrels. And so... We, we have that situation here in America. You know, most of the oil that's produced today never goes through Cushing, Oklahoma. So you can move to the waterborne barrel at the Gulf Coast, and, and that's what this is all about. And, and it, it will be, but we, we've gone through the very first stages of creating this, and with both Argus and Platts, uh, these uh, price reporting agencies uh, taking this up, uh, and, and putting markets out there, this, this is a great thing that's occurred uh, for American production here in the U.S. So it's a great day for this industry, and uh, I couldn't be uh, happier today uh, with, with how this has begun. It is in the beginning stages. Uh, I want to make sure everybody knows that, and it takes the entire industry to create a, a market like this. But uh, we, we feel like this is uh, well underway. We're very pleased with where we're at today. And perhaps uh, it'll be part of our, you know, of our commodity checks here at CNBC in the future. Do you think, what would the price of AGS be today? Is it generally lower or higher than WTI? You know, it uh, is going to be uh, uh, probably superior uh, because it's on the water. It's ready to, ready to go. You know, we're, we're exporting a lot of oil, 3.3 million barrels week over week last week, and I believe that was the number. And, and so, you know, what, what we've created in uh, America with, 
horizontal drilling uh, over the past 10 years has been tremendous, put us the number one producer in the world. And certainly this is a market that will be very competitive in the future. And, you know, it's not there to replace uh, Cushing WTI at all. It's, uh, you know, it's a very competitive uh, market situation out there. And, uh, but it, it put us more on a, a, low, uh, a uh, level uh, playing field with the rest of the world, global markets. So uh, we, we feel uh, very good about where we're at. And certainly want to thank uh, both uh, Platts and Argus, you know, for uh, following this and, and putting these markers out there and announce that today. Uh, it, it's just a great day for this industry. Well, and we're pleased that you're here to talk to us about it. Uh, Harold, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. Harold Hamm is the founder and executive chairman of Continental Resources. Coming up, Facebook shares sharply lower as Verizon and Unilever, two of the biggest spenders so far, pause advertising on the site. Is it just the start, and what does it mean for the bottom line? Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The exchange is back in a couple. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Another big sell-off today as COVID cases spike, leading Texas and Florida to roll back reopenings. The Dow session low is 691. We're down 547 points at this hour, 2.1%. The Dow is the worst performer of the major averages. The S&P is down 1.7%. The Nasdaq's down 1.5%. And you can see the sector board behind me. There's no green to be found today. This is a broad sell-off. Uh, but by far, the worst sectors are actually down at the other corner there with financials. And we've been speaking a lot about the problems with the banks today. We're going to have more on that in a bit about the Fed's decision here to kind of restrict some capital return. The financials are down nearly 4%. But communication services, energy, industrials, materials, those are also some of your worst performers. So pretty broad basket. Some individual stocks on the move right now include shares of Gap, which are taking off after they're partnering with Kanye West's fashion brand Yeezy. This collection will be called Yeezy Gap. It will debut next year. So Gap getting a welcome respite from a very tough year. It's up 23% to 1250 today. And shares of Office Depot go in the other way. They are sharply lower. The office retailer announcing a one for 10 reverse stock split that would become effective at the close of trading on June 30th. Now, shareholders approved the move at the company's annual meeting in May. Still, investors not taking kindly to it today. ODP is down 8% to just over $2 a share. And finally, take a look at Boeing. It's pairing some of its earlier losses as we're getting more indications that the key FAA test flight of the 737 MAX will happen next week. Several new reports out there today 
matching this end of June timeline that Phil LeBeau had been reporting. Sources saying the final decision should come sometime today. Boeing shares now down only about two and a half percent. They're around 170. We'll bring you all of that uh, in terms of the news updates on the Boeing front as we get it. Let's check in with Leslie Picker now for our CNBC News Update. Hi, Leslie. Hey, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. Police say today's stabbing incident at a Glasgow hotel in which six people, including a police officer, were injured is not being treated as terrorism. The suspect was shot dead by police, the BBC reports. The hotel has been housing asylum seekers during the coronavirus pandemic. In Mexico City, heavily armed gunmen attacked and wounded the city's police chief. Two of his security people were also killed, along with a woman who happened to be driving by. The European Union is reportedly moving closer to banning U.S. citizens when borders are opened on July 1st, according to a draft list being considered by officials. Nike CEO John Donahoe is warning employees that layoffs are coming. The cuts are expected in two waves, the first in July, then again in the fall. Head to CNBC.com for more on Nike's plans. And that's our CNBC News update for this hour. Back over to you, Kelly. Leslie, thank you very much. Coming up, as I mentioned, banks are sinking today with the Fed imposing limits on dividends and buybacks. Both bank ETFs are on pace to end the week down nearly 10% now. We'll look at what's next for the sector. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. Look at shares of Facebook sharply lower by more than 7% today as Verizon and Unilever join the growing list of advertisers boycotting the tech giant. Julia Borson is here with the very latest. Julia? Kelly, that's right. Unilever is one of the largest advertisers in the world, now boycotting Facebook and Twitter, building on a protest organized by the NAACP and Anti-Defamation League, demanding that Facebook crack down on hate speech and racism. Unilever saying in a statement that through the end of the year, it will not run brand advertising in the news feeds of Facebook, Instagram and Twitter in the U.S., saying, quote, Continuing to advertise on these platforms at this time would not add value to people and society, and we are confident this approach will lead to more productive progress. Now, to put this in context, Unilever spent nearly $3.2 million just in the past month on Facebook and Instagram ads, according to an analytics firm called Pathmatics. We haven't yet gotten a comment from Facebook on Unilever's move, but Twitter saying to us, quote, we have developed policies and platform capabilities designed to protect and serve the public conversation and, as always, are committed to amplifying voices from underrepresented communities and marginalized Groups. Now, Unilever joins Verizon and about 100 smaller advertisers, including North Face, REI, and Patagonia, who have pledged to pause Facebook ads in order to drive change there. Now, Facebook's ad chief, Carolyn Everson, told advertisers in an email we obtained that boycotting is not the way to accomplish change at the social media giant. Kelly? Interesting. Julia, stay right there. And if the list of companies continues to grow, what would it mean for Facebook's bottom line? Let's ask uh, Brent Phil. He's managing director and senior analyst at Jefferies. Brent, it's, it's good to have you. Does Unilever and Verizon's boycott change things for you? Kelly, uh, it does not. It, it obviously is clearly uh, not great news, but we think more advertisers are joining Facebook than leaving. There are 8 million advertisers on the Facebook platform. What Facebook has done recently with shops has let small businesses get online easier. And today, you know, there are 800 million global small businesses, 160 million of those use Facebook and only five or six million pay. So there's a tremendous opportunity 
still for advertisers joining. The ROI is off the charts relative to other advertising means. And nothing against Unilever, but I'm not really influenced to buy a Dove uh, bar of soap uh, by looking at an ad from Unilever on, on Dove soap. I need soap. Everyone needs soap. So, uh, yeah, when Patagonia and Arcteryx pull out, these are amazing brands that do a lot of great things for for the world. Uh, and I think that uh, clearly, if you see a stampede of, of more of these, then we'll be concerned. But again, more are joining than leaving. What happened with Cambridge Analytica, Brent, which this reminds me a lot of. Uh, we had a lot of advertisers leave or threaten to boycott the platform back then. Facebook shares were very choppy for a while. Did they all eventually return to the platform? And do you think this time some might possibly leave for good? So Facebook was $130 stock uh, during that uh, time. And I think ultimately what, what we, we continue to say is that there's more good on the platform than bad. And it's a neutral platform. It's an open platform. And that's what Zuckerberg intends it to be. Uh, so we think, obviously, everyone's going to have their view. But I think this goes back to you get a couple big uh, vendors that pull off. And not great to see, but you got to put it in context of, of where we're at. And there's really only a few great digital platforms that continue to benefit. So I think we've continued to see these headline risks and these headwinds. Uh, but ultimately, we, we think, again, it, you have to look at the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is... The ROI is incredible. More people are going there. And, and we think that this will this will uh, uh, pass through. And Julie, I think in Unilever's case, they said they're leaving the platforms through the end of the year. Through the end of the year, they said they may, might change their mind. But the real question, Kelly, I think is because Unilever is such a big advertiser, whether other companies such as Procter & Gamble feel like they want to join in, um, Unilever really being the biggest one there, Verizon also meaningful. Now, Facebook, uh, I just want to let you know, Kelly, that we just moments ago got word from Facebook responding to this move by Unilever, saying that they invest billions of dollars each year to keep the community safe and continuously work with outside experts to review and update our policies, noting that they open themselves up to a civil rights audit and have banned 250 white supremacist organizations from Facebook and Instagram. They go on and talk about how much um, hate speech that they do take down. But what I think is really interesting, Kelly, is what I've been hearing from my sources in the advertising world is what they want is they want Facebook to take down content that's racist, even if there's no imminent harm from it or, you know, hate speech or threats of harm, even if it doesn't seem like the harm is imminent. So what these brands, it seems like what they really want is Facebook to go one step further in terms of what they think is inappropriate on the platform, which will require really a decision by Mark Zuckerberg to change where he's drawing the line. Brent, would that be a bigger threat to Facebook stock or simply if they do more content moderation, that means potentially hiring more people. But what Julie's describing would be a, a much bigger change in strategy. I think that they have been uh, policing content and, and they've used AI uh, to, do, to do this. So they don't necessarily have to hire people in Silicon Valley to police content. Uh, they're doing that. Uh, I think there's so many other revenue initiatives uh, that we, we see, again, you, you, we talk about Facebook shops, what they're doing for small businesses that have been hurt due to COVID that had to shut the physical storefront. They're going virtual and can do it through Facebook. We think is a tremendous catalyst for these small businesses to come online. So I, I think, you know, again, uh, we've seen these uh, issues from time to time. I think directionally uh, they're going in the, in the right direction with advertisers. And I think they're all going to come back. I, I don't think they're going to boycott the platform for good. Uh, they'll be back. Many have said it's a one-month boycott. So, uh, yes, 
Short term, the entire advertising industry is seeing a headwind given the unfortunate events that originated out of Minneapolis. Um, they're, they're putting their projects on, on, on hold in the short term, but we think that's going to come back in the third and fourth quarter. And you have a $250 price target? Yes, we do. Facebook is at 219 today. Like you said, it was a $130 stock back during Cambridge Analytica. Julia, uh, Brent, thank you so much. Our Julia Borston and Brent Hill of Jefferies. Still ahead, the bank stocks are also getting hit hard today after the Fed placed restrictions on dividends following annual stress tests. We will dig more into these names next. And the home builders are also selling off. Mortgage forbearance numbers spiking and erasing roughly half the improvement we had seen since mid-May. We will get a housing health checkup coming up on The Exchange. Welcome back. The banks are under pressure, some of them big time pressure, but the whole index is down more than 5% as results of the Fed's stress test include a cap on capital returns. Let's bring in Wilfred Frost for more bad news. Wilf is back. I know, and it, it really is very much bad uh, moves uh, across the screen for the banks today. Now, the standout point, uh, Kelly, uh, w- that took the banks by surprise is that they're going to be retested in the fall. Markets, therefore, don't have that. 12-month forward-looking certainty on capital levels and capital return plans that they normally get each year at the stress test, hence share prices uh, are lower. The dividend part is what's grabbing the headlines, though. Banks cannot pay out more than a trailing four quarters of earnings. Put another way, they cannot have over 100% payout ratio. Here's where we stand on that measure. Most banks look fine for now, that is. A few, like Wells Fargo, don't. They're widely expected to have to cut their dividend, and Capital One Financial is also above 100% on uh, this measure. Citizens and Huntington uh, are above 75%. But all banks could have issues soon if they have multiple quarters of low or no earnings, like in Q1, as those quarters replace good quarters from last year in the 12-month trailing earnings calculation. On the capital side, it looks like Goldman Sachs's actual stress capital buffer, or SCB, sits below their required one. So they've got some work to do by the 1st of October to rectify that. But it should be very achievable work. Morgan Stanley, by the way, seems to have been the most positively surprising on the SCB result there, required level falling significantly, partly because of the E-Trade acquisition. The bottom line, things kind of fine for now. 2% share price uh, declines before the big broad market sell-off. But another big round of tests to come in the fall. And the Fed looks like it's prepared to be tough on the banks at that round, if the economy doesn't improve between now and then. So some uh, pretty hefty share price declines as we stand. And it's another interesting validation of what you pointed out earlier this week, Wilf, the disparity between how well Morgan Stanley's done this year versus how poorly Wells Fargo has done. Mm-hmm. Goldman, of course, being hurt today as well. If this is validation of the direction Morgan's going with E-Trade and so forth, what options does it leave for a Goldman or for a Wells Fargo if they were trying to even think about that right now? Yeah, I mean, interestingly, uh, Goldman Sachs was one of the year-to-date outperformers, but uh, has suffered the most today. So uh, I guess a bit of catch down in that regard. Morgan Stanley, though, we should point out, on an absolute basis, still has one of the highest stress capital buffers required. It's just that it improved the most uh, relative to last year uh, and more so than expected. And part of that is that uh, the E-Trade acquisition diversifies their earnings base better than it previously had been, meaning they now have to hold slightly less capital. So it's a kind of weird one. They they actually, uh, in an absolute basis, still have one of the highest 
capital levels that they have to hold in order to, to prove that they're safe. It's just it has reduced from a high level. But, but either way, as you say, we are getting a huge amount of stock differentiation uh, now. Wells Fargo versus Morgan Stanley, the most stark one. And, and that may well continue as we approach earnings in a couple of weeks' time and we get more specifics out of individual companies. Yeah, maybe it is a stock picker's market this year. Will, thanks so much. We'll see you in a little bit. Wilfred Frost. The home builders are also falling today, along with the broader market, granted, as the surge in coronavirus cases renews doubts about the recovery. And Black Knight reporting that the number of homeowners in forbearance rose this week after three consecutive weeks of declines. Joining me with more is Andy Walden, Black Knight's director of market research. Andy, it's good to see you back, but we, we kind of thought or hoped this story was going to be over. What's going on? Yeah, that's exactly right. And it, it sends a clear message that we're not out of the woods yet in terms of the coronavirus impact on the mortgage and housing market. Again, as you said, after three weeks of continuing improvement uh, in, the, in the forbearance trends in the market, we clearly bucked that trend this week. And this is in a big way. It says here this is erases roughly half of the improvement seen since the peak of May. Um, do you know what has accounted for this? I mean, we can assume that some of the harder hit parts of the country because of coronavirus, is that prompting more layoffs? Is it people who thought they might be back in their jobs in places in the Northeast, but those places aren't reopening the way that, that they had hoped? Can you get any sense of, what, of that? Yeah, I think there are a number of different drivers behind what we're seeing here this week. One is potentially more benign, and that's that we just passed the 15th of the month. And what we've seen in prior months is when you, when you see those late fees charged on mortgages, it prompts some homeowners to go out there and initiate those forbearance claims. So perhaps a little bit of that. Uh, another thing that we also see this month is that there were a large number of forbearance plans that were set to expire here in the month of June. Perhaps homeowners that had taken those forbearance plans out as an insurance policy starting to see some of those uh, economic numbers, some of those COVID case rate rises, and they're sticking in those plans a little bit longer than they otherwise would have been. Interesting. Where do you think this leaves the mortgage market in terms of, I mean, we just uh, had the mortgage rate briefly dip, I believe, below 3%. Um, you know, you have new buyers coming in. But overall, does this, you think, negatively impact uh, perhaps the spread uh, on mortgages or does it trickle back through any other number of ways? Yeah, and surprisingly, when you look at originations and when you look at lending spreads, kind of the primary versus secondary spread, you've actually seen that fall a little bit, which has been helping to drive down those mortgage interest rates. It's been helping to to kind of put upward pressure on that, that home buying demand and, and refinance incentive in the market. So it'll be interesting to watch that over the next couple of weeks to see if that shifts at all with some of these new numbers uh, coming out. But we have been seeing those spreads improve in recent weeks. And finally, as you said, this also could be a little bit of a monthly effect. You know, we have people who maybe seen those late fees and thought maybe now's the time to enter forbearance. I believe our Diana Olick has reported this program will be around through the end of the year. Um, so we could be facing a number of months in which a trend that we thought was a one-time trend could become somewhat recurring, right? That's right. You have these monthly cyclical trends that, that take place in the market. The other big one is uh, unemployment benefit ex uh, extensions that are, that are due uh, to expire at the end of July. So that's a big one that we'll be keeping an eye on to see if and, and what impact that has on mortgage performance and forbearance volumes as well. Yeah, that's a great point. Andy, it's good to see you again, sort of. Uh, thank well. you. We appreciate <laughs> it. Andy Walden with Black Knight. Well, stocks are on pace for a losing week as COVID cases do spike across the country. All 11 sectors are in the red. We have a trader on how to navigate this volatility and a few names to buy right after this. Stay with us. Welcome back. The Coronavirus Task Force briefing underway right now. First one in a couple of months. Let's listen to what was just said moments ago about the current CDC guidelines. Well, I, I want to remind you again that the 
freedom of speech and the right to peaceably assemble is enshrined in the Constitution of the United States. Uh, and even in a health crisis, the American people don't forfeit our constitutional rights. And working with state officials, um, uh, as we did in Oklahoma and as, uh, uh, as we did uh, in Arizona, uh, we're creating settings where people can choose to participate uh, in the political process. And, uh, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, it, it, I, think it's, I think it's really important uh, that we recognize how important, uh, how important freedom and personal responsibility are to this entire equation. And, but allowing, allowing younger Americans, allowing Amer- younger Americans to understand, particularly in the counties that are most impacted, uh, uh, the unique challenges uh, that uh, we're facing uh, in their age group, we think uh, is important. But look, it's 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 so important that we recognize that. that as we issued guidance to reopen America now two months ago, and now as all 50 states are opening up our country again, people are going back to work. American everyday life is being restored kind of one step, one day at a time. I I think it's important that we remind ourselves this is not a choice between the health of the American people and a strong economy. There are profound health implications uh, to the lockdowns through which we just passed, I, I heard it. I heard a statistic not long ago at a at a, at a task force briefing that in one jurisdiction. And that's Vice President Mike Pence speaking at that coronavirus task force briefing. We'll bring you more headlines as we do get them. As stocks are in a free fall to end the week, banks are getting crushed, and COVID cases are on the rise. Are investors in for more pain as the path forward remains unclear? Let's bring in Jeff Kilberg, the founder and CEO of KKM Financial. Jeff, it's good to have you here. You know, it's, it's a sell-off today. I mean, it's nothing like what we saw back in March. What is this market telling you? Well, Kelly, it's really interesting. We are seeing some selling pressure, and this is the fix and start that we expected. We've been trying to measure local and state governments reopening, businesses reopening, and you are seeing some emotion in the tape. But let's be mindful that the volatility, the VIX, it's not even above 35. So that type of emotion, I think it's presenting opportunity as we go into the end of the month. So we're looking to rebalance into some sectors and some specific names. What gives you confidence that this isn't the beginning of a deeper slide for the markets? Well, so that's a great question. In this time of emotion, Kelly, I think it's so important for active investors, institutional investors to really rely upon the technicals. We look at the technicals on the S&P 500 and we see it's still above the 200 day moving average as well as the 50 day moving average. So that strength that's being revealed, there's been a lot of tests. I think that's actually quite constructive for the marketplace. If we continue to back and fill and consolidate around these moving averages, that allows the markets to move higher. But that is providing a lot of confidence right now. So with that said, you think that this, broadly speaking, Jeff, is a buying opportunity? I think it is a buying opportunity. I know we were on two weeks ago talking about the retail sector being very specific. We talked about buying gap two weeks ago. But today, I want to look at some of the software names. We've really seen assets attract the software, but we're sticking with themes in biotech. This global sense of urgency in the biotech. These are names like Amgen, Gilead, Horizon Therapeutics. We have seen just sensational move, and we don't see that abating. That sense of urgency in the biotech, as well as technologies, is going to persist. So we're sticking with themes. But one thing we got rid of, Kelly, really interesting 
in our ETF model portfolios. We sold utilities this week. For the first time in over a year and a half, we have checked and harvested those gains in utilities and walking away from that consistent, prudent approach owning utilities. I mean, that's interesting. I would have been more interested if you said you were selling big tech. No, I think it's interesting that our models are telling us that it's time to put on more beta. We're wow. staying above these moving averages. It's re, re, actually showing relative strength. So therefore, we're getting rid of that lower beta utility play and walking into the higher beta names, being prudent and sector tilting. But at the end of the day, we're selling utilities for a reason, Kelly. Do you know anyone who wouldn't want to own Amazon, Google, Facebook, you know, fam, <laughs> so to speak? Uh, no, it's amazing. And we talked about how sore my thumb is post-COVID-19 of hitting that Amazon app. But it continues to dominate. We see Amazon being a player. But it's interesting in some technology names. Look at a Salesforce. You know, look at an Oracle, an Intuit, names you wouldn't think of typically. But these are names that are going to profit in the wake of COVID-19 because people are finding more and more software solutions. And Adobe is another great name. So these are names that are attracting assets. And I think the technology and the subsector of technology will continue to thrive, not just in Q2, Q3. I think this is a theme moving forward in 2021-22. The persistence yeah. and the attraction of assets, not just domestically, it's global central bankers, it's global institutional investors finding their way to these technology names and these software names. Jeff Kilberg, a pleasure as always. Thank you. All right, you're the best, Kelly. Thanks KKM for Financial. That does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. FedEx.